Hello listener and welcome to the pod's first secondary special. What would you buy secondhand? Clothes? Shoes? PE fun stakes? We talk about the market's evolution from bargain basement deals to premium vintage. Join us and a special guest as we visit the PE equivalent of Sotheby's. All that and more in this episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Hello listeners and welcome to the pod. I'm Oscar Gein and we're talking secondaries today. On the panel, we have Associate Editor Denise Kojinovese. Hi, Denise. Hi, Oscar. And Unquote Research Manager and the fun guru, Gareth Morgan. Welcome, Gareth. Hello, Oscar. Good to be back. Now, we're talking about secondaries today, which is a topic that's never far from the headlines. Just recently, we've heard about a Japanese bank that's selling a $5 billion portfolio of PE fund stakes, as well as Lexington Group that's buying up stakes in PE funds from UK pension funds. Now, Gareth and Denise, you've been working closely with Campbell Lutchins to compile a report on trends in the secondaries market which was published last month. Now, it's a great read listener, and it's available to our subscribers on unquote.com. But if you haven't seen it, please do get in touch and we'll be happy to share. Gareth, could you start us off by talking us through the report and the main themes that came out of it? Sure. The single main theme of, of the report really was how the secondaries market has evolved. It really once was a, a quite a niche corner of the private equity industry, and, and increasingly it's more and more on our radar. We're seeing record secondaries fundraising by dedicated managers. We're seeing really high-profile GP-led transactions. We're seeing huge portfolio sales, like the $5 billion one you just mentioned. Um, so increasingly, secondaries is becoming a much more core part of the private equity market. So we really wanted to explore what some of the drivers were behind that and what the future might look like for the secondary space. Great. Well, we look forward to getting into some of those themes in a minute. But first, could you give us a bit of a statistical breakdown? How, how much money's been raised and what, what the transaction volume's like? Uh, so the the key year for secondary fundraising in uh, has been 2016. That saw 33.65 billion euros raised. Um, well, Ideon closed the fund that year. Lexington closed the fund that year as well. So it was one of those years where all the big players were were active. Um, it's tailed off a little bit since then, uh, being a relatively small asset class. Still, you're you're heavily dependent on on large players. But interestingly, this year looks like it's going to be another big year. Um, Ardian are back in the market, targeting twelve billion dollars. Um, Lexington also targeting around ten, I think. Um, Collar due to close soon, raising eight billion. Um, so yeah, I think two thousand nineteen is going to be another a record-breaking year for secondaries fundraising. Great. Well, definitely, we'll look forward to reporting on those when they close. Denise, you spoke to some, uh, some if I could say, picky GPs for the piece that you wrote um, about their main concerns in LP-led transactions. Could you summarize that for us? Yeah, absolutely. I think, Oscar, though, it's less of a concern and more of a we want in on the process. You know, LP-led um, is exactly that, instigated by the limited partners, the investors themselves. And I think GPs have realized that they don't actually need to sit on the sidelines, even for an LP-led deal, that they can actually exert some power in the process. And this has come to the fore in them exercising approval rights, sort of stipulating who can buy the stakes in their own funds. And obviously, they can do this because LPAs dictate that um, an LP has to ask for the approval of its GP when it sells. At the heart of it, though, I think is the GP's desire to keep an eye, keep control over its investor base. Yeah, I, I heard of one example of a secondaries fund that was actually asked to withdraw a bid um, in an LP-led process because they weren't willing to commit primary capital as part of a staple. Is sort of primary fundraising often one of the 
reasons? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's leverage, really. Um, they um, want to make sure that if they're giving over a part of their fund, this sort of precious relationship, that the LP in question uh, will be able to commit to them in the future. Someone said to me, you wouldn't probably want a secondaries-only buyer to buy your stake because to them, they wouldn't be able to commit any primary money for a primary fund, so that would be dead money for them. Sure. Um, now, we'll go on to speak about the GP-leds a little bit more after we hear the interview. Um, but the last point from the report that I wanted to touch on in this part is the progress of secondaries in different asset classes. Uh, Denise, you wrote about this with private debt and venture transactions. What's the deal with private debt? Yeah, um, a lot of money has been raised um, and put to work in the private debt sphere recently, especially when banks pulled back post-financial crisis and a sort of whole swathe of mid-market direct lenders stepped into the breach. Um, So a natural derivative is a secondaries market. And I spoke to um, many people in the market and even Canberra Luchin said they have started to see more people interested in a dedicated strategy, possibly even a dedicated fund to, to private debt secondaries. Okay, so definite opportunity for growth there. How about venture? Yeah, venture, this is the surprising one. I thought that um, because venture has been there for a long time that, you know, we were going to hear people in the market saying, yep, it's all about venture secondaries, but actually it's not. Um, It's always been there, um, but it's never gained great traction. And someone said to me, it's because there were, you know, quite unique challenges um, when you face venture, you know, stuff like um, IRRs are more volatile. It's hard to get the sort of financial information, um, uh, before investing, you know, there are a lot of things involved. And so they said, you're either interested in venture or you're not. It's a tricky one. That's quite interesting, actually. I think from a portfolio level, that makes a lot of sense. But I, I, I've heard that venture GPs were actually kind of trailblazers when it came to running GP-led processes on, on their funds. Um, after the dot-com boom, obviously, there was a lot, lot of venture capital invested there. Very little of it was actually in a majority position, though. So they they weren't able, they didn't have the control to force a sale. Um, So for them to generate any kind of liquidity, their only option was to to run a secondaries process. Great. Well, we'll be back to speak more about GP-leds in private equity a bit later. But first, we're going to get some expert input on the topic with Campbell Lutchins and Manuel Rubin. We'll be back with that interview after this. Hello listener, I'm here to tell you about Allocate, European Private Equities AGM, hosted by Unquote. This year we'll be returning to the Grove in Hertfordshire from the 19th to the 21st of June. I'll be there, Oscar will be there, and so will more than 100 LPs, the top tier of European GPs, and our advisory partners. We'll be talking about all the big themes that will affect the next private equity cycle, catching up with old friends, and maybe even taking part in some outdoor activities, cycling, golf, yoga and a barbecue you can find out more at events.unquote.com forward slash allocate we look forward to seeing you there hello listener i'm here at the campbell lutchins office with partner emmanuel rubin hi emmanuel welcome to the podcast hi thanks for coming in now we're here to talk about the secondaries market uh, and Campbell Lutchins have been involved in that space for, for several decades now. Uh, I wonder if you could give uh, our listeners the, the benefit of your experience and maybe talk through how you've seen the market evolve over this time. Yeah, I've been in the market for the last 15 years advising on secondary transactions. But I have to say what we've seen over the last two to three years has been very exciting. And it's changed dramatically with the emergence of what we would call the GP-led um, transactions. What's been interesting, there's been probably two key factors that have been really helping to develop this market. On the one hand, 
the deal flow up to about two, three years before these deals came about used to be very tail-endish. What do we mean by that? It was funds that were typically 10, 11, 12, or even older years old. And what this ultimately meant for the secondary community is that they could buy basically IRR, but not multiple. Because ultimately these companies were old, about to be exited, and therefore there was no more growth available. What has been interesting about um, that factor is that the secondary market doesn't just want IRR, it's also looking for multiple. So that started to become a real problem. Similarly, which has been helping and which sort of came together was the emergence that GP started to accept the secondary market as a potential source of capital to solve for different problems. Historically, the GP market was really associated with failing GPs, sometimes also called the zombie funds. But that started to change over the last few years with high quality managers looking into this market and looking what could be achieved. As a response, what we've seen is transactions um, being uh, coming to market where there was suddenly growth available with high-quality managers. And we can talk a little bit about some of these deals if of interest. Excellent. Yeah, I think maybe if you could give an example of one or two of these, uh, these kind of more innovative recent deals, that would be really interesting. Sure. About two years ago, um, we were advising BC Partners on their liquidity offering for their Fund 9. That was a new situation where a manager saw a lot of demand by the secondary buy side into the fund, but requiring secondary um, opportunities. Similarly, while they were um, getting very strong re-ups from their existing investors who've been backing the franchise for many more for many years, they saw a particular type of investor that only had backed them for one single fund and was really not looking to come back. And they started to see some secondary demand on their side. So this is really the first large-scale transaction where we helped um, and advised BC partners on how do you bring this together. And in effect, what it ended up was an optional liquidity offering to all LPs, where basically um, those were given the opportunity in this instance to sell out at a 14% premium, and the new investors coming in um, basically um, buying that purchase price and at the same time committing new capital to the new fund. At the end, this was a billion transactions and really helped to bring the BC um, partners fundraising to a very successful end towards. We've kind of seen you know, several of these GP-led transactions grabbing headlines over the last few years. I was just wondering what kind of, what size, of, what proportion of the market they, they're, they're accounting for versus the more traditional kind of LP state portfolio sale. Sure. Um, it's been steadily increasing. And if we were to look back, I guess by now, probably five years, you would see a very, very low percentage, and like mm. probably four or five, if, if that. We have to say in 2017, however, it was already coming to fruition. It was about a quarter of okay. the market. And in 2018, so last year, we estimated it was about 31%. What is fascinating between the numbers, well, 25 to 31% doesn't sound that large an increase, is because the market dramatically grew over the last year. This is actually an increase of 80% between 2017 yeah. to 18. We've recently actually seen examples of, of GP-led processes where without the, the services of an advisor on the deal, um, I wonder if you could give a little bit of an insight on that, on maybe what, what an advisor brings to the transaction um, from, from the GP side and also from, from the point of view of an LP involved in, in perhaps the original fund. 
one of the very important aspects of these transactions, and not all of them, the BC Partners transaction I mentioned did not have any conflicts associated with it. However, other transactions where particularly assets are sold to continuation funds, where the existing manager continues to manage the assets going forward, they do have inherent potential conflicts of interest. And as such, the role of the advisor is essential in this transaction to ensure that these um, conflicts are appropriately managed. So while we may have seen some managers doing liquidity offerings themselves, um, that may well be in their right. We do see particularly on these conflict, conflicted transactions the need for advisors, and typically advisors have been involved to date. So moving on a little bit to, to the fundraising side of things, um, we've seen secondaries fundraising break records year on year for the last couple of years. Um, what appeals to, to LPs about this asset class? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And in, our, in my mind, and when I look at it, is that secondaries really provide a very, very attractive um, return relative to the risk mm-hmm. they typically take in a transaction. So you have to think about a secondary um, transaction. They come in at a very different stage than the, um, you would typically see primary capital being invested in. What do we mean by that? If a secondary fund buys an interest in year six or seven, typically what you will find, all the companies um, are typically in a steady state. This has settled with management. Often if changes to management were required, they have been made. And on top of this, typically they have delivered. So you would typically see that in year five, six in a typical company, you have seen some level of um, deleveraging happening there. Interestingly as well, in investment of a private equity fund, when does it go wrong? When is really the difficult period? And that's really when the new GP takes over on the company because things are never quite the way they looked like from the outside. And therefore, when secondary investors come in, they don't take any of these type of risks. And therefore, um, with a strategy that um, basically targets 15% and that type of risk, um, it is hugely attractive. Interestingly, to date, we believe there's hardly been any secondary funds that ever lost any capital. And to our knowledge, there have been only three or four that have not managed to return back the capital to their investors. So if you think about 15% relative to no loss, very attractive and no surprise that (laughs) investors come back to the industry. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, as you said, no surprise that you you were seeing this kind of fundraising levels. Um, Finally, I think it's... um, it would be interesting for you to, to kind of gaze into your crystal ball and give us a little bit of insight into to what you think the future might hold for, for the secondaries market over the next couple of years. Look, we are strong believers in the continued growth of this industry, um, but I think there's different opinions out there. From a macro level and being sort of just looking at the progression of the market, we wouldn't be surprised if this becomes a market of 90 billion, maybe 100 billion in about three to four years. That would be really supported by when we look at the strong fundraisings that we have seen in the primary markets over the last three to four years. I have to say that hasn't stopped some secondary funds out there um, coming up with numbers like 250 billion in 10 years. Um, I think for this to happen, we would really need to see a step change. And I think you need a lot more velocity of transactions to a level where this becomes a very liquid market. What we find exciting is that probably the GP-led market, and we talked about a 25% of the current market, or 31%, um, is still arguably in its infancy, and we still expect a lot of significant growth, both because it's getting more um, accepted by the market, but also the technology itself hasn't really fully been utilized to date. 
it's really where it will come to fruition is the ability for managers to manage portfolios far more actively mm-hmm. um, than they could do to date. So, for example, if you've got too much exposure to a particular sector and you see another great add-on opportunities, but for portfolio construction reasons, you couldn't go for that. Why not just sell a strip in the sector, get it financed by the secondary community and continue um, making the new investment as such? So it gives a lot more opportunities going forward and we're quite excited about these. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time, Emmanuel. That was a really interesting insight there. Thank you. Really interesting to hear from Emmanuel there and get his take on the sort of differing size estimates for the growth potential of the market over the next few years. That 200 million figure, I've got a feeling I've heard that from someone at Collar Capital at some point. But anyway, part of the reason why all these secondaries firms are so kind of bullish on the potential for growth is that the secondaries market can be used to solve lots of different problems now. Isn't that right, Gareth? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's where the GP-led space has, has really grown over recent years. Obviously, Emmanuel went through the example of, of BC Partners in some detail there. The kind of motivations for that deal were, were for them to, to realign their LP base to set themselves up for, for their next generation of, of funds. Um, we're seeing a lot, of, a lot of managers access the secondary market for, for different reasons. Um, for example, Nordic Capital, Invest Industrial, both found themselves in a position where they didn't really want to, to let go of assets at the end of a fund's life. So they used the secondaries market to roll those into to a new vehicle, got some new capital to some follow on capital for those assets, and also were able to provide liquidity for their original LPs. And we actually saw interestingly InvestCorp recently who were operating on a deal by deal basis in the past, rolled up six portfolio companies into a new vehicle which was backed by Collar Capital. Um, and they also raised some primary capital alongside that. So they used that as a, a platform to kickstart their, their fundraising and, and I suppose their franchise. Yeah, strange in the way that we refer to all of those different transactions as GP-led, when really it's very different context, very different motivation often, and therefore sort of very different transactions mm-hmm. that we end up seeing. Um, but I wanted to pick up on the InvestCorp one quickly, because I think... If I remember rightly, InvestCorp was one of the transactions, one of the most high-profile transactions anyway, that didn't use a secondaries advisor. Um, so, Denise, what did you sort of think of Emmanuel's take on the role of the advisor? Yeah, it was um, interesting that he talked about the role of the advisor in terms of managing conflicts of interest. Um, I think that whenever a market starts to evolve and, and gets more mature, there is more and more of a role um, for um, it to be intermediate, intermediated um, and um, to use an advisor. Um, when I was following um, this whole LP-led story and how GPs were getting more picky as to who could buy um, the fund stakes... Um, someone said um, it's in this situation that an advisor is um, of absolute importance um, because if you're potentially stipulating, you know, maybe only two or three people, that might be an extreme case of who can buy um, a stake in your fund, um, then surely you need an advisor to make sure that uh, that LP is going to get um, a good amount of money um, for the, the sale and to create kind of healthy competition. So often it's in a sort of in a GP's interest, but it's not just in the the GP that's in the interest of, is it, Gareth? No, absolutely. And this is something that that I think almost everyone I spoke to on on this report 
mentioned, not just on, on the advisory side, but on the, the buy side and the sell side also, is that advisors also provide a kind of a rubber stamp for the rationale behind a transaction in the eyes of the LP base. These deals are often quite complex. It can be a little bit difficult for LPs to, to really understand the motivations behind them. And because of that, they can often feel like they're not being given the full story. So that's where advisors can, can really help uh, and where LPs really f- feel very comfortable is where there is an advisor in place on the deal and and they're being fully appraised on, on what's happening and why. Sure, right. Well, um, advisors are obviously here to stay then. Um, thank you both. I'm afraid that is all that we've got time for. Um, my thanks go out to Emmanuel Rubin and the whole team at Campbell Lutchens, to both my panellists here in the studio, producer Kenny and you, listener. We'll speak soon.